Uh, We're in chapter 11 today. I invite you to pull out a Bible if you don't already have one out. And we are going to continue in the story of Luke. And, And where we're at now is a section where we have been seeing what it means to follow Jesus. What does real discipleship look like? Last week, we considered the story of Martha and Mary and heard Jesus's call and invitation to sit at his feet and listen to his word. And it's actually no accident that today, right after the story about sitting and listening, we're brought into another story that talks about prayer. Prayer is crucial to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And we're going to enter into Jesus's teaching on prayer. And I think this is a really important thing. Because as I listen to you and as I listen to people who are walking with Jesus, prayer is probably one of uh, the most significant areas where we feel insecure in our Christian life. Prayer is one of the significant areas where many of us feel like we don't press in enough to prayer or we don't know how to pray or we don't know what to pray. So this morning is really important for us. So I do invite you to have a Bible open. We're going to be referring to the text to Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. So if you go there, we're going to read that and then consider what Jesus has to teach us about prayer. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 843. Luke 11, verses 1 to 13. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Living God, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us for the sake of renewal of 
of worship in our midst for the sake of renewal of prayer and of connecting with you. And I pray that you, Spirit, would come and open our hearts and minds to understand what it is you are saying to us this morning. Jesus, be present here to teach us about this matter of prayer. We pray in your name. Amen. What we're going to do this morning is really spend some focused time considering the foundation of Christian prayer. Our story begins with Jesus praying, which is something that we've seen habitually in Luke. In Luke chapter 5, we learn that Jesus often withdrew into a quiet place to pray. And so we start with Jesus praying and then his disciples asking him, Lord, teach us to pray. And in one simple word, Jesus brings us right into the foundation of prayer. That word is Father. Father. It's the first word he tells his disciples to say when they pray. And let's be honest, as Christians, it's probably one that if you grew up in the church or you're familiar with the prayer that Jesus taught us, you just pass over it without a second thought. We often miss the weightiness of that word. And so that's where I really want us to dig in this morning because I think if we can begin to recognize what it means that because of Jesus, we can take the title of Father and address it to the God of the universe, I think if we can reckon with that, that's gonna change our lives and change how we pray. So as we've been walking through Luke, as you saw in the video, what's abundantly clear is Jesus has this utterly unique relationship with God, right? When he was baptized, the heavens open, the dove comes, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and there's the voice. You are my beloved son and you, I am well pleased. And then again, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus has this unique relationship to God. But now in this text, something even more astonishing is happening. He's inviting his disciples into that relationship he has with his father. Do you see that? He's inviting them to start enjoying the relationship that he has with his father in prayer. And this is really surprising because there's not much mention of God in the Old Testament as father. God is referred to as father 15 times in the whole Old Testament scripture, and he is never directly addressed as father by a human. Never. And now when we come to the New Testament, God is called father 245 times in a whole lot less pages. And in Jesus' own prayers and in the prayer he teaches his disciples to pray, there is that direct address. Father. Whoa, this is huge. Something is totally changing in the configuration of the relationships in the universe, in Jesus, that is absolutely groundbreaking. Think about it. Are there any fathers in the room? Yeah, there's some fathers in the room. Okay, in your life, who gets to call you dad? Who gets to call you dad? For me, it's three people, right? Zoe, Eli, and Jude. 
No one else. And there are lots of kids that we have over to our house. There are lots of kids in this church community, uh, you know, in, a, in our neighborhood that I really care about. I really love them. And my kids love them and my family love them. But only three get to call me daddy. And if one of them were to call me dad, it would feel a bit awkward. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, I'm not your dad. <laughs> you hopefully have a dad, but... Why is it awkward? Because they're not mine, right? In order for another child that, other than my three children to call me dad, something would need to happen. Something official, right? I would need to adopt them. They would need to legally become my child and I their guardian for us to have that kind of intimate address with one another. And in telling Jesus, or in Jesus telling his disciples to call God Father, he's not being inappropriate. He's not being flippant. What he's doing is he's setting the stage for what's going to happen in Jerusalem when he dies on a Roman cross. He is going to do something official that is going to alter the relational configuration of the universe and of humanity's broken relationship with God Almighty. If you fast forward in the New Testament story, here's Paul's take on what happened in the cross. In Galatians 4, 4 to 7, Paul says, beginning at the end of verse 3, that we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba. That's a very intimate uh, way to address God. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. This is one of the clearest statements of the gospel in the New Testament, right? We were slaves, held in bondage to sin and evil, but then God sent his son to the very point where we were enslaved to redeem us. Now that word redeem is a special word. We sang it, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Uh, redeem is a special word that means to pay the price for the freedom of a slave. It means to pay the price for the freedom of a slave. Our freedom was not free. It had a cost. We had signed our lives over to evil and evil had rights to us much as a slave owner in that day had the deed to a slave's life. God redeems us from slavery through Jesus. Why? That we might receive adoption meaning that we're brought into God's family. It's that official transfer from being on the outside to being on the inside. And then in addition to this official transfer, you know, God isn't just happy for us to know that we're adopted in our minds. He wants us to know it in the very core of our being. And so God sends his spirit in our hearts to confirm what has happened the reality that we are God's children. The spirit within us cries out, Abba, Father. It's the Holy Spirit who speaks that yes. 
in the bottom of your spirit, in the core of your being, that you know you are God's child. Amen. This tells us that adoption isn't only the foundation of prayer, but it's also one of its goals. I'm not saying that prayer carries out the adoption that has objectively happened in Christ and his cross, but I mean in the sense that we might know that adoption more deeply. That our identity as God's children would be worked more deeply into us and into every area of our lives. Look at verse 13 in our text. Jesus says, um, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Notice how we're told to ask, but then we don't necessarily get what we've asked for. We get, in Luke's gospel, the Holy Spirit. What's up with that? What does that mean? At the very least, Jesus is signaling the fact that there is a need that is even higher than all our other needs. Right? We have daily needs for sustenance and protection. We have spiritual needs uh, for the forgiveness of our sins, for renewal, for, for acknowledging and knowing the holiness of God. But there's a need above our need, and that's just to know our Heavenly Father. That's what the Spirit does in us. One of the roles of the Spirit is, is to cry out with us and confirm that identity that we are God's children. So the grace of adoption is not only the foundation of Christian prayer, it's also one of its goals that we might know we are children of God. And this has a few implications for us. The foundation of prayer is adoption, and this means a few things. It means that we come under the authority and care of the Father. It, it means that we have access to him, and it means that we, have, we are heirs. And I just want to uh, pause on this and explore what it means to come under the authority and care of the Father. It's not lost on me that that, that sentence has some loaded words in us, in it. Okay, father, that's a loaded word for many of us because maybe we, you've had a father who really blew it. Maybe you've never known someone that you could actually call father. And our view of God has been shaped by our fathers. We need to know that God isn't a father like our fathers. We need to know that God is the perfect and good father and that part of the Christian life is actually allowing Jesus to correct our view of the Father. Jesus told his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told that he is the image of the invisible God. He's here to let us know what God's really like. We need to let him do that. The second loaded word is that word authority. Doesn't the modern mind love that word, authority? No, we, we've seen the abuse of power so often. It's a, it's a cliche, really, in our day and age. And our default stance toward authority is mistrust, right? And skepticism. But Jesus has been showing us how God uses his authority. 
that he doesn't use his authority to enslave people and put people under his foot. He uses his authority to free people and to bring them into life. And so as we talk about uh, adoption, meaning we come under the authority of our father, we need to let God reshape those words for us so that we can enter into what this is saying. Because adoption means we come under authority. You know, often today, talk about God as father often strays into us thinking, oh, that's such a cute thing, right? Father, you get warm fuzzies. But because we're seeing fatherhood through our modern lens, we're not bringing that note of authority into it. You with me? It's theologian Tom Smale. He's Anglican and he's charismatic uh, theologically. It's a great mixture, um, those Anglican charismatics. In his book, The Forgotten Father, he says, father in the Bible is not the indulgent daddy of the 20th century, but the one who has authoritative and absolute rights to the obedience of his children. Whoa. That sounds very different from a lot of the father talk I hear presently in the church. Now, uh, some of you parents in the room might be thinking, that's what I'm talking about, (laughs) right? I need my kids right here listening to this. Um, This doesn't mean the father isn't loving. This doesn't mean the father isn't caring. This doesn't mean that he's heavy-handed. This does not mean that the father forces his children into obedience, and nor should we. But it means the father deserves our obedience. And it means that our position before him is not one over him. I mean, I, my, my wife and I struggle every day. Our daughter, Zoe, she's very gifted. She's very smart. And, and you can tell when she's trying to gain power over you. She's five. And she is constantly trying to put herself over us in different ways. And she's learning skills of manip- manipulation that I never knew. We are not above God our Father. We are below him. And that means trusting. And that means submitting to his will. You know, sometimes we think that fatherly love means I'm gonna get everything I want, but as every parent knows, giving a child everything they want is a sure way to ruin them. So we don't know what's best for us. This is why being under God's authority is is such good news. Because he knows what's truly good for us, even when it doesn't feel like he's acting for our good. Even when we don't understand it, the call is to trust that he is. To be under his authority also means that we're under his care. Notice in that prayer, lead us not into temptation. Father, protect us from the things that are seeking to rob us of life. Protect us from the things that are, that are coming at us, seeking to draw us in, into chaos and brokenness. Things from within ourselves and from without. Notice that prayer, give us each day our daily bread, his care about even the mundane details of our lives is so evident here. 
His word brought the entire universe into existence, yet he cares about every minute detail of your life. Adoption means that we are under the authority and care of our heavenly father. It also means we have access. Yes, the father is holy and we pray, hallowed be thy name. Would your name be reverenced? Would your character be held as set apart? And he has authority above us, but he is accessible. He is available. We can enjoy intimacy with him. Nobody has access to me like my kids do. Anytime, anywhere, even at 2 a.m. when I don't want them to have access to me. Right? This means access for us. Adoption also means that we have become heirs. So say you adopt a child, right? On the day you sign the papers, that child comes under your authority and cares. They have an access to you and your time and your attention. And whatever is yours also becomes theirs. So say you designed an app and you made a ton of money and you've got lots of money in the bank. That child, when you adopted them, they didn't lift a finger to earn that wealth. They didn't do anything to get it, but because you adopted them, it's theirs. It's not theirs to do what they want with, but it's part of their inheritance. That's what we're talking about here. What belongs to God starts to belong to us. Can you see how the grace of adoption, as, as we really hear it and receive it and know it is going to change our lives and how we pray. So someone threw you under the bus at work, right? So, so someone attacked your reputation. Where's your identity rooted? What's your inheritance? It's in your father who loves you. Are you going to go nuts because they attacked your reputation? No. Let's know what we have in our Father. It's going to change our lives and it's going to change how we pray. Why? Because we're not living to earn God's love and acceptance. We already have it. It's going to change how we pray because we're not praying because we're on the outside trying to get in. But unfortunately, that's so often how we pray. We pray as if we're on the outside trying to get in. The reality is we're already in. We already have all things through Jesus because in him and through him, we have the Father. And, and think about it. What's the Father's net worth? What is the God of the universe worth? Right? He didn't just create the, an app. He created everything. <laughs> now, I've had this conversation with some people around prayer. Um, and a question I've been asked before is, why pray? Right? If God knows what I need, because he knows everything, and he's good and he loves me, can't he just like kind of automatically dish out? Why do I have to ask? No, this is a serious question. And the answer comes from this foundation of prayer. If the foundation of prayer is the grace of adoption, therefore we are brought into this love relationship with God. Uh, our life and the goal of our life is no longer about efficiency and just getting what we need. It's about that love relationship. Uh, listen to what P.T. Forsyth says. Um, he was an old school 
uh, Scottish reform preacher. This book is from like 1916. It's probably the best book on prayer I've ever read. He says this. This is profound. Love loves to be told what it already knows. Every lover knows that. It wants to be asked for what it longs to give. That is the principle of prayer to the all-knowing love. Isn't that an absolutely holy thought? Why do we ask? Why do we pray? Because it's all about love. It's not about getting what we want, but giving and getting in love. Imagine living with even just an ounce of the awareness of the grace of adoption and the love of the Father in your life how that would change your life. Let's consider, how is Jesus teaching us to pray then? In verses two to four, Jesus has given us the prayer and the foundation of prayer is is that adoption, uh, that in Jesus, God has made us his children, but, but how is he teaching us to pray? And the question is really fleshed out in verses five to 13, and you probably notice, Jesus gives them the prayer and then he launches into a parable. And then he says some words and then he says another parable or illustration type thing. And we're probably wondering, how do these all fit together? How are these parables teaching us how to pray? And what the parables do is they they show us that we are to pray in three ways, confidently, imperfectly and unceasingly, confidently. This is the big idea of the parables, right? The midnight friend in verses five to eight, what this parable is saying is that in the ancient world, you would go with confidence to ask your friend for bread. It would be unthinkable in that culture with the high value they placed on hospitality and honor it would be absolutely unthinkable for your friend to turn you away, even at midnight. Unthinkable. There wouldn't even be a question about it. And he wouldn't just give you three loaves of bread. I mean, in that day, bread was basic. Bread was your forks and your knives for the dinner. And he wouldn't just give you the bread. He would give you, what does it say? Everything you need. In verses 11 to 12, uh, the parable is about the father's giving a gift. uh, And and Jesus is really doing the same thing in this parable. He's saying, you you would come with confidence, just like you would as a friend at midnight, so your children come with confidence to you. Your children come with confidence knowing if they ask you for a fish, you're not going to give them a snake. If they ask you for an egg, you're not going to give them a scorpion, that's the point. And this point is driven home in verse 13. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, listen to these next three words. How much more? How much more will your father in heaven, if a friend will give you everything you need, uh, if your child knows you will give them everything they need, how much more will your father give you what you need when you ask. How much more does God love you? How much more is he dependable than you are? How much 
greater is his character? How much more generous is he? How much more willing is he? How much more? That's how these parables work. And it's just telling us that we can come with confidence before God. We do not ask as beggars, but as children. So we can ask with confidence. Now, as we talk about confidence, there's a caution because confidence and entitlement are two different things. Although we come with confidence, we're still coming before Almighty God. We're still coming before a throne, even though it's a throne of grace. And so presumption and entitlement have no place. But we come with confidence. Secondly, we pray imperfectly. Why do I say imperfectly? For two reasons. First, it's right there in the prayer, right? We need forgiveness. He tells us to ask God for forgiveness. We're not perfect and far from it, so we should not pretend to be, right? If I'm a selfish person, there is no use in coming to God pretending I'm not selfish. Because this does two things. I'm, I'm actually not placing myself before God honestly and in a place where he can work on my selfishness. And secondly, the only person I'm deceiving is myself, right? God knows how selfish I am. I, I'm, I'm not any more screwed up than he already knows I am. And that's why confession is there. Forgive us our sins. And it's in daily confession of our sin and receiving in his forgiveness that we're then able to minister his forgiveness to others. That's there in the prayer too, that we're not only receiving forgiveness, but we are living lives that are releasing others in the grace of Jesus. The second reason why we need to pray imperfectly is because the point of our weakness is exactly where God can show his strength. The point, at the point of our weakness is exactly where God shows his strength. We can, we can never be too weak for God, but we can be too strong for him. In a very real sense, his help in our lives is actually dependent on our helplessness. Because in thinking that we're strong, we keep ourselves independent and self-sufficient, right? It, it prevents us from asking for his help. And God is so loving and so good. Like I said, he doesn't force us. He respects our decisions. He waits to be asked. And thinking that we're strong keeps us from taking refuge in his strength. Some of us are worried about our words in prayer. Some of us have anxiety about that, especially praying in groups, especially if you're a new Christian, right? You're like, how do I pray? I teach baptism classes. And the number one thing that's like fun to see and sometimes really awkward that you just have to sit in is seeing people like pray for the first time out loud. But should that stop us from praying? My son Jude is too, and he's in that amazing stage where he's talking all the time, but nothing he says makes any sense, right? It's all toddler gibberish. Do you think it bothers me that nothing he says to me makes any sense? It melts my heart <laughs> to know he's trying to communicate with me. He's trying to figure out this whole talking thing. And here's the thing, because I know him, I know what he's trying to say. Right, I know that gagap is dump truck. I know that biba 
is lollipop. I know that ice is rice, and I know that up means down. I get it because I know him. And that's how God knows us. He can make sense of our nonsense. Even in times where we're so disturbed by the events in our lives, so at a loss to know what's going on in us because we're just reeling in crisis. He can make sense of our nonsense. In prayer, we come imperfectly. This is so important because the worst thing we could ever do is not pray. And if we think we always need to be perfect and polished, we need to just be free of that lie. We need to be free of that lie. Because if that's true, then first of all, we're never gonna come and pray. It's never gonna happen. Secondly, we're gonna feel guilty about the whole matter of prayer and every time we pray. But when we approach prayer from a gospel standpoint and not from a standpoint of religiosity, to approach prayer from a gospel standpoint means that we know that our access to God is entirely dependent on what he has done for us in the cross of Christ not in what I have done, not in my ability to be eloquent, say the right words, feel the right thing. We come imperfectly. That's the message of verses nine and 10. And I think Nike's motto really captures it. Just do it. Jesus says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one to the one who knocks the door will be opened. When you hear an inner voice accusing you, you're not good enough to pray, just do it. When you think you've blown it and you're too dirty to talk to God, just do it. Pray. When you feel like you don't have the right words and don't even know what's going on in yourself, just do it. Pray. And keep on doing it. We are to pray unceasingly. First of all, there's that clue. Give us this day our daily bread as in this is a daily habit. But second of all, the verb tense of those words, ask, see, and knock in the Greek, are present tense. Which if, if, if you just tuned out because I started talking about grammar, come back, come back to me. The present tense in the Greek is an awesome tense because it means a continuous action. So Jesus is in effect saying, keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Prayer happens with confidence. Through Jesus, we can pray imperfectly because he is our holiness, he is our perfection, and we are to pray unceasingly. Jesus is not just our model for prayer. He's not just our teacher. He's the reason we can pray at all. It's striking when you read through all of Jesus's prayers, the ones that the New Testament writers wrote down for us to hear, the, the single constant in every prayer is that word Father. He's always addressing God as Father. The Lord's Prayer here and in Matthew 6, Father. When Jesus prays a prayer of thanksgiving in Luke 10 and Matthew 11, he says, I thank you, Father, his prayer before raising Lazarus from the dead. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. His prayer for his disciples in the upper room in John 17. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. His prayer in the garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove 
this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Father is always on Jesus' lips when he prays, except once. And that's when he hung on the cross and he said, my God, my God, not Father. My God, my God, using that more general term and that's signaling what really happened on the cross. And that's that the son was forsaken so that we might be adopted. He was cast out so that we would be brought in. His prayer was broken so that our prayer might happen. That's the price of our redemption. It's the price of our adoption. And it is what has secured us access into that love relationship between father and son and us there as his children that we might pray to our heavenly father. I wanna invite the worship team to come as we close our service.